This podcast contains disturbing accounts of intrafamily violence and trauma. If you or anyone you know are in need of support, the National Domestic Violence Hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week by calling 1-800-799-SAFE or chatting with an advocate at www.thehotline.org. Again, that's 1-800-799-SAFE or www.thehotline.org. From the National Judicial Institute on Domestic Violence, this is Centering Children, a discussion with child psychology experts on helping children exposed to domestic violence heal and thrive. I'm your host, Aaron Polke. Joining us again on this episode are two psychologists from the Center for Research and Education on Violence Against Women and Children, a center at Western University, London, Ontario, Canada. I'd like to welcome you, Dr. Peter Jaffe. Great to be here, Aaron. Looking forward to our discussion. Thank you, and welcome, Dr. Linda Baker. Thank you, Aaron. I'm also looking forward to the discussion. Dr. Baker, I'd like to start with you. You know, today our topic is resilience. And before we go deeply into the topic, I think it would be important to let our listeners know, what do we mean by resilience when folks in the field use that word? And why does it matter when we are centering children? Aaron, we've come to understand resilience as a dynamic process, and that means we describe resilience as the child's process of navigating through risk or adversity. And to do this navigation, the child draws on internal resources, like the ability to problem solve, as well as resources external to the child, like a safe adult in their environment. And this process supports the child's healthy adaptation and recovery following exposure to a significant risk or adversity. What this definition tells us is that resilience is not static and it is not an all or nothing phenomenon. So it's not the case that children have it or don't have it, but rather our current understanding of resilience tells us that adults can foster and build resilience in children. And that's really key. This is a significant shift in our approach to supporting children experiencing risk or adversity. Children's emotional and physical safety is still the overarching concern, and it remains essential that we focus on impacts of children's exposure to domestic violence and trauma and assess and manage risks. However, understanding resilience in the way that we've come to in the field tells us that in addition, we also need to be aware of the protective factors that help children achieve better outcomes. So it's not just about taking away symptoms or bad behavior. It's about developing children's assets and resources. These podcasts focus on uh, centering children in particular in judicial proceedings and family court. And Dr. Jaffe, of all the considerations that a family court uh, must consider, or all the things that the family court must think about in navigating cases involving children, why would resilience be something to consider on top of all the other considerations? Well, judges play a critical role in actually promoting resilience. Now, judges obviously don't do it by themselves. Uh, they depend on 
good community-related, court-related and community-related uh, resources that can help parents and children heal from abuse. And often the court is going to be focused on parents and, and their primary characteristics and, and what the issues are before the court. And the concern sometimes is in the focus on parents, children may be overlooked. In fact, children's needs may become secondary or invisible when judges are dependent on third parties to, to convey that information. So I think it's essential for judges to really consider children's resilience and factors that promote resilience. Because uh, if they don't ask these questions, uh, the children are going to be overlooked. Another way of saying this is when we're thinking about parents' dispute and parents who are apparently at war with each other, that, it, that can't overshadow a child's resilience and their voice about uh, their needs. Again, this is a really important discussion, as Dr. Baker said, that we're becoming more and more aware of. And there's some excellent technical assistance briefs available through the National Council that can present some information to reinforce these messages for judges. Dr. Baker, I'd like to talk with you about the research. Um, I think there's a lot of intuitive connection with the topic of resilience and everything that we've spoken about up until now. But what does the research say about resilience? What protective factors promote resilience? Why, by research, can we substantiate resilience as helpful in helping children survive and, and heal following exposure to domestic violence? Well, the good news is that research has identified a number of protective factors that promote resilience in children. So perhaps where we should start is, well, what is a protective factor? Uh, and protective factors are characteristics existing within the child and the child's environment that contribute to healthy development. And we describe protective factors as creating buffers for children when adverse events, such as exposure to domestic violence, are experienced. And it's useful to think of these factors as occurring in sort of three areas. One, protectors associated with the individual child, his or herself, or protectors that exist within the child's family, or more broadly, protectors in the child's community. And when it comes to building and strengthening resilience, of course, we're most interested in protective factors that adults, such as parents, educators, coaches, helpers, can actually influence. Dr. Jaffe, uh, is there anything that you'd like to add in this discussion about protective factors? Well, it's important to consider individual protective factors that, that children may bring and we need to consider. A big factor may be temperament. We all know that children are born with very different temperaments. Um, actually, I have four boys. I always think of one of them was like Eeyore. You could always see a cloud on a, on a sunny day and worry. In fact, now he studies storms. And I have another son who is much more like uh, Tigger Winnie the Pooh, who woke up happy and went to bed happy, always interested in adventure. And I think that that kind of temperament really has a big impact. Uh, children's understanding, uh, being able to make sense of their experiences, what happened, uh, is it going to happen again, what what can be done uh, to help protect them, what, what can they do to protect themselves, and what adults are doing around them to protect them. Relationships is critical. Uh, children 
uh, may have uh, excellent relationship abilities and are able to form positive peer relationships that are an important protective factor. And then another final example is uh, culture, uh, children with a strong cultural identity that may support them. I, I remember growing up as an immigrant child in my community, and I used to be embarrassed when my grandmother spoke a language other than English. I have a sister who was a leader in our school, and she used to teach other kids the language uh, of origin. You know, so two kids with two, one, one, my sister was one who embraced the culture and uh, shared it. And that's something that I had to learn over, over time. So these are some examples of individual protective factors. We're working from the inside out. Thank you, Dr. Jaffe. And you laid the groundwork, Dr. Baker. So we've started with the individual child and let's take a step out, Dr. Baker, if you will, and speak to the protective factors that uh, families can provide. Okay, Aaron. Family is the primary social environment for young children, and and it continues to play a key role in children's lives through adolescence and beyond. So not surprisingly, family can be a source of protectors throughout a child's life. One such protector is a positive child-caregiver relationship. And here, when we talk about positive, we're talking about a caregiver-child relationship where the caregiver nurturingly and appropriately responds to the physical, emotional, and social needs of the child. Another key protector within families is stability. Uh, A stable living environment enables the routines and security for children that is critical for their healthy development. Now, the final family for protector that I'm going to mention, while noting there are many others, is the buffer created by healthy adult role models in a child's family life. And again, the family is an important social learning environment. And when children and youth see respectful relationships modeled, they learn from the ground up the important skills of taking another's perspective, compromise, and collaborative problem solving. So healthy adult role models in the family is a protective factor across the life course and influences interactions with teachers, dating partners, relationships with their own children in the future, co-parenting relationships, and relationships with co-workers, just to name a few. And role models can occur anywhere, as you just said, Dr. Baker. So let's go back to you, Dr. Jaffe, on this journey. We've begun with the individual, we've moved to family, and since role models can also be present in community, let's pick up there and talk about additional protective factors that might be available um, as our community focuses on resilience in children. Well, Aaron, it, it takes a whole village to promote resiliency, and there are several key examples. For example, access to critical services for children that address their basic needs in terms of health and education. Uh, Schools play an essential role here because if children are dealing with the aftermath of uh, child maltreatment or living with domestic violence, they need a positive and supportive school climate where they're surrounded by protective uh, adults and good role models. Uh, Mentors are critical in children's lives. Uh, There may be a a coach that they have at school, a a teacher, uh, could be a big brother, um, so there are so many people that can play a, a critical mentoring role. And then neighborhood cohesion is also important. 
obviously the extent to which children are living in a safe and connected community where people are looking after each other and uh, where good neighbors mean something including being a protective adult then those are also essential uh, community factors that might promote resilience Dr. Baker, I think I'd like to ask you for a quick little reality check, though. I know that in the recollections of my childhood, everything was not perfect and everything was not complete. And I don't think that I could say that I was individually um, in a position all the time and that my family or the community um, ever knew uh, the completeness that might be required to promote resiliency. So the question I have for you is, what if there's a situation where a child does not have each piece that you and Dr. Jaffe just highlighted? Do children need all of these protective factors to build resilience? Such an important question, Aaron. And the bottom line is we want children and youth to have as many protective factors in their lives as possible. This is one case where more is actually better. But having said that, no, you don't need all of those protective factors. And we've actually come to think of one factor being more important than perhaps all the others. And that is we want all children and youth to have a consistent, supportive and nurturing adult. And especially in when they are navigating adversity and risk. And often in cases of domestic violence, that's the child's mother. And in the absence of that um, possibility, I also like to, I always often like to remind folks that if they have the opportunity, that adult could be you. Um, if you can do it safely and comfortably and without, within your uh, uh, comfort zone, it can always be you. Uh, so we've laid the research groundwork here. Um, and we've identified the protective factors that uh, contribute to resilience. Dr. Jaffe, I'd like to talk with you about putting this research, uh, putting these ideas in action. So in talking to uh, judicial officers, people who work in court systems, um, what would you say in, um, uh, to advise them in uh, developing true action plans uh, that incorporate resilience in cases uh, that involve children who are exposed to domestic violence? Judges play a critical leadership role. So obviously the messages that judges send out about resilience and the importance of resilience to all court-related professionals and community agencies, I think is, is critical. Uh, decisions that judges make can make a difference in reinforcing uh, all the factors that Dr. Baker and I are, are talking about. Uh, obviously these days we're talking more about trauma and form practices, judges being aware of the impact of violence in children's lives. And part of trauma-informed practices also involves promoting healing opportunities and resilience for children. Uh, one immediate step the court could take is promoting early screening and assessment of, uh, of children's risk and need for safety plans. Um, but there also needs to be early screening and assessment for resilience factors uh, that you know, we don't think about as commonly. Uh, there are a number of great tools available. Uh, some are hopefully going to be available on uh, the website with this podcast. And overall, the key thing is just to be aware of resilience and protective factors that are critical in determining parenting arrangements that promote uh, safety and stability for, for children. So in other words, not just ending the violence, 
providing safety, but also promoting resilience as part of the ongoing plan for children. Oh, yes, we'll make sure that the uh, early screening tool um, that you just referenced and all the other tools that we're referencing are available at www.njidv.org. So for our listeners, Dr. Baker, uh, what, what are the top takeaways? If, if someone's listening to this podcast and the top things that they need to know about resilience with respect to children, what are the bullet points that they can take away with? Well, I'm going to mention five, Aaron. And the first is that adults have an important role to play in fostering and building resilience in children. And I just appreciated so much your comment that you might be that adult. And we all could be that adult for a child. And some of the ways that we can really help is by modeling healthy relationships, teaching problem-solving skills, something that basic, strengthening emotional and behavioral regulation skills, and understanding the importance of positive relationships in the lives of children and youth and, and how we can contribute to that. The second is the recognition that we can foster resilience at every stage of development. And it's true, the earlier we start, the better, but it's never too late. And I think that's really important because often when we see an adolescent that's experienced a lot of adversity, um, then we sometimes forget that there's still time and we can still make a difference for that child. Um, the third is to never forget that resilient children may be living in a lethal situation. And that overarching priority um, continues to be safety. And this is so important when it comes to significant risk and adversity that a child may be exposed to within the context of domestic violence and child maltreatment. So a child may be doing really well at school, socially, academically, in sports. But that same child may be at significant risk from the violence of one of the parental figures um, and the violence that that parental figure is presenting to the family. The fourth takeaway would be building on Dr. Jaffe's point, trauma and violence informed approaches can truly help strengthen children's resilience because these approaches work in ways that minimize re-traumatization of children and families. They promote trust and they center children's voice and choice. And my final takeaway uh, to offer in terms of this podcast would be that children really benefit when services and supports view resilience through an ecological approach that considers the strengths and potential sources of resilience and the protective factors present or potentially available to each individual child. So sometimes it's just identifying and bolstering those strengths. So, so it's about asking, what are the internal protective factors a given child brings? Some of those factors that Dr. Jaffe mentioned earlier, and how can we strengthen them? What are the protective factors in the family and the extended family? And how can those factors be preserved and strengthened? And then finally, what are the protective factors at school, in the neighborhood, or in the community? And, and who who's available within that realm of a child's life to, again, start building and strengthening resilience. Thank you, Dr. Baker, for uh, helping us lay such a strong foundation for all the things that we can do outside of court systems. So I'll turn to you, 
with the same question, Dr. Jaffe, the top things, the takeaways for our friends and family court systems, the things that they can do that better address resilience in children and family courts. I think it's important that judges are aware of all the issues that children face, obviously dealing with uh, child maltreatment or living with domestic violence, the things that adversely affect uh, their resilience. Uh, what can judges do? So I guess a, a simple way to put this is that judges need to look at what can they do to work on a more strength-based approach. Uh, for, for example, you know, there may be an issue around ch giving children an opportunity to move back to a hometown that may be important uh, to reinforce their connection to grandparents and extended family. Or perhaps they can stay put and stay in the same school that has a special connection for them through a music teacher or coach that may be critical to, to their development. In, in other words, judges need to focus on the presence of consistent, loving, and supportive adults in, uh, in children's lives. There needs to be time within court proceedings, which sometimes I know are rushed. There's never enough time, but I, I think it's important to stop and take time to talk about resilience within uh, family court proceedings and to make sure those issues are included in assessment reports, uh, court orders, and and case planning. And sometimes it may be critical to provide information to children and parents about services that are available that reinforce resilience factors, both formal and informal networks that may be available. Uh, obviously, judges in their leadership role need to encourage or even demand that other service providers uh, develop resilience-informed practices and actually have performance indicators and outcomes that are a regular part of what they're doing within their profession and within their agency. Uh, the bottom line is really judges as leaders uh, making sure that resilience is seen as something that's important, focusing on developing assets and resources for children, not just taking away symptoms or bad behavior. Well, on behalf of our effort here at the National Judicial Institute in Domestic Violence, I'd like to thank both of you for joining us for this series on Centering Children. Um, we really not only appreciate your considerable expertise, but also your uh, deep personal dedication to this work. It then translates in um, your, not only um, in the research and the foundation that you provided, but the heart and love um, that we hear in your words and in your spirits with us today. So I'd like to thank you first, Dr. Baker, for being with us for this series. Well, you're very welcome, Aaron. It's been a real pleasure. And I'd like to thank you, Dr. Jaffe, for joining us for this series. Thank you, Aaron. It's obviously an honor to be part of this very important discussion. I hope it's helpful for the judges that are listening. Centering Children is presented by the National Judicial Institute on Domestic Violence, a partnership of Futures Without Violence and the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, with the support of the Office on Violence Against Women, U.S. Department of Justice. Special thanks to Jennifer Arsenian and Brianne Smith for co-producing this program. Until next time, I'm Aaron Poquet.